0: hello today in the loopcast I have my good friend Theo Hansen and we are discussing this is gonna be a broad show but um, as you listen you'll you'll kind of understand why it's broad but it's generally going to be about gun culture and the fit the look uh, I have been I've kind of returned to uh, reading uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum's kind of treatment of punk rock and metal in in kind of far right and right spaces and then kind of looking at Cynthia Miller-Idris's um, Hate in the Homeland. And the reason I mentioned those two books cuz I was and kind of the inspiration for the show was this curiosity of culture, of fit, of style, of fashion, of aesthetics on the right. I felt like that I had missed a lot. Like there was kind of these general generalizations of history and kind of, you know, from the clan to the punk scene of the 80s and 90s, but I really wanted to sit down and kind of examine something and examine something um, that is touching almost every part of the the right and the far right, and that's gun culture. Um, so with all that being said, uh, please welcome my guest, Theo Hansen. How's it going? I'm doing all right. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Of course, of course. Um, so I, I guess that the really core of the show is going to be about influence and about uh, culture. So I guess if we're going to discuss gun culture, let's start with the forums, the weapon boards. And kind of you, the notes you sent over, you you kind of highlight uh, the forward slash K forward slash. Um, I, I, I don't know how to vocalize that. Um, but if you could, you know, Describe these image boards that are kind of focused on guns and on sort of tactical culture.
1: Yeah, so K is 4chan's weapons board, but uh, slash K has also been used in, uh, you know, back when image boards were a much more common thing on the internet, uh, when they were a little bit more ubiquitous, K was just always the weapons boards. Normally slash K slash or slash w slash and i mean in in that it's an extension of the ideas the basic idea behind image boards it's people shit posting um i actually i took a look at k before i got on here because i hadn't looked at it recently and it's yeah it's just the same same stuff you'd always expect pictures of guns people talking about guns it's really and we're we can get into this more later but it's a lot more of an enthusiast's space kind of like a a nerdy space than a lot of
0: the other things on 4chan. So when you say enthusiast space, I think whenever you're, whenever anybody describes like a social space of the right, the first question that comes to my mind, um, and I'm going to kind of express it in kind of a a funny way first, and then kind of a more serious way. How racist is this space? You know, is it, (laughs) <laughs> is the expectation that, you know, this is a gun enthusiast space? Is it inclusive, you know, right? Does it have like black gun owners, Asian gun owners, you know, Hispanic, or is it kind of what you would expect of a, of a Chan image board?
1: Yeah. So the kind of, I guess, like the demographics of K are a, a little weird. They're almost a relic of an earlier time on 4chan and the general culture is kind of like that as well uh before polls started being in in news stories really uh and that's kind of these less overtly political space which i i kind of balk at the idea of describing these spaces as apolitical but in, in their rules uh it's like a pinned thread and it's there's no gun control threads there's no politics threads however it's still on 4chan. Uh, so kind of the, I guess, the 4chan conception of uh, what apolitical means is very different uh, from yours or mine. So there's still, I mean, you know, people say, uh, people people use some vocabulary that uh, would be considered a, a nuclear-level faux pas for either of us. Um, but it's, it's more in that... And I, I'm really trying uh, to make sure that this does not come off as uh, defending any of the things they say, but the function of it in a communicative communicative sense is much more so that this is just the language of the platform rather than this is uh, you know like expressly ideological.
0: So I want to return to this idea of an enthusiast space. Um, So I I guess like when, when I started writing these questions, I thought about the word enthusiast a lot, because I think in my professional life and in kind of my hobby life, like guns, you don't get enthusiastic about guns, right? They're, they're there to hunt. You either use them to hunt or you use them for self-defense or leverage. Like it's not, it's not something that you'd be enthusiastic about. It's like, it's like if I, it was enthusiastic about a wrench, right? Like it's a tool. Um, so could you explore this, this idea, this description of, of an enthusiast space? Is it like guys just kind of posing with, you know, their weapons or is it kind of more like tips and tricks? Like how would you describe the idea of an enthusiast space? So being, kind of a a gun
1: enthusiast especially in in the online sense at least in my opinion you can kind of divide it pretty clearly into two groups and one is sort of the the wannabe group uh the guys who are buying the super expensive stuff and you know they're taking pictures in it they're posting it on instagram the instagram operators uh you know they're doing all that stuff and that's kind of more of just a it's, it's like a little kid's conception of it. it's uh this is a cool thing that goes boom, and I can wear stuff that makes me look cool. The K enthusiast is much more of like the second type, which is just just a nerd who happened to land on guns. uh it's it reminds me a lot of really people who are into any uh, kind of technology, like whether it's uh people who are into radios or people who are uh, get really into coding or computer hardware and stuff like that it, it's much less focused on the the broader implications of the weapons platforms that they're discussing and it's much more focused on uh, you know what was really the best bolt action rifle of the interwar period or it's stuff like that it's stupid Fan arguments almost, and you know it's like it's like sports fans debating about stuff, and the, these people get really into how the guns operate mechanically, um, the historical usage of weapons platforms, like really rare um, guns with like weird operating systems and weird use cases, and that's kind of, that's kind of how I've always been too. Which is why I find this stuff really fascinating. Is like I, I get the the urge to be interested in that stuff um
0: yeah would it would it be accurate to describe it as a fandom for guns or is it is fandom kind of a too strong of a description or too strong of a word uh i i think fandoms uh
1: i mean i i kind of fall into the camp of i think fandom is a good descriptor for most interactive online communities (laughs) Uh, Cause they all kind of replicate, you know, that basic social dynamic, but uh, it it's less so that they're fans of the guns. I mean, they are, don't, don't get me wrong. They love the guns, um, but it's more of a kind of community of people who have the same weird special interest, I think would be the best way I could describe it. Because uh, it's a lot less interactive than a fandom. That's also what um, when I kind of make the distinction between things like K and the more famous Chan boards like Poll. Uh, Poll has this really important external component to it. Uh, the people on Poll are, you know, obsessed with this idea that they're a bunch of shit posters and they can influence politics and media and they can do troll brigades. And you don't see any of that stuff on K. They mostly i would say the the bulk of the regular posters on there are are just there to talk about guns they're not really they don't see the platform as an extension
0: of their political program that's interesting that you mentioned that like i i i kind of like that comparison that the idea of poll has this explicitly external component they're that they want to have agency in the world and influence in the world, you know, expressed as trolling, shitposting, whatever, but you're kind of making this argument that K, in comparison to Poll, they're kind of just happy in their own kind of internal kind of narrative and, and interactions. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty,
1: that's how I view it. And I mean, I haven't looked at, you know, much, there's not really much hard data about k in the same way that there is for pole um so i you know i don't have the numbers for that necessarily but from from my kind of engagement with this milieu uh that's kind of how you that's how you bring people into it to like the things that occur off of k uh that you can get into if you're a weapons enthusiast um you just kind of start them with, oh, this is a place to talk about the thing that you like and everybody else gets the thing
0: that you like. So then what is their view on politics? Like, I feel like you can't, at least in the United States, you can't separate out guns and gun ownership from the politics that surround it. Like, you know, the politics, like, I want to be real general, like it's, you know, whether it's a 2A argument or, you know, gun limitations or whatever, but um, on K, how do they kind of form and understand their politics? Is it, as you kind of pointed out, is it just like a severe ban? You can't, you know, no politics, nothing, or is it kind of leaks out and dribs and drabs?
1: Um, It definitely, it definitely leaks out. A lot. Um, I actually, I just reopened it to look at what the top threads were, and where did that one go? Um, yeah, one of the top threads right now is tactics against cartels. What would be the best tactics to intercept the smuggling routes, and tactics to ambush smugglers? Um, but it, it's, it's all kind of, when they do talk about something like that, which, you know, uh, either of us could look at that and be, this is clearly a political statement um you go to the replies and there's you know some typical 4chan stuff and then there's people giving like logistical and policy things it's all it's all a lot more uh i I don't know if analytical's 100 the right word but it's all it all comes from the guns more so than the guns come from the politics um because like you know, gun, gun culture uh, kind of writ large is something that will always have a place and weapons will always have a place in these extreme political movements. Uh, the difference with K is, you know, it's not like you meet some Nazis and you're like, I'm going to hang out with these guys. A year later, they're like, you really need to learn how to shoot a gun. It's someone who has... And and a lot of it's wrapped up in the history, too. Because uh, they're also history nerds. Uh, and they're nerds about, again, the weapons in history. And that leads to so there's a lot of... Um, and I, I don't know, is like wearaboo a term that you're familiar with? I'm not. <laughs> what is it? Okay. <laughs> so so a wearaboo is a... Uh, a Wehrmacht enthusiast, I guess you could say. Uh, And it's kind of, it's a part of this whole clean Wehrmacht myth uh, that was laundered by a lot of the surviving uh, sort of military leadership of the Third Reich after World War II. And it's this, uh, it's usually characterized by an interest in the engineering and the technology. and, And then this process, like, you know, you get into that stuff, because it's always the tanks, um, and to be clear, the Panzers sucked. They were, by and large, bad and over-engineered, like, like most German equipment in World War II, um, but they're, they're interesting, because they're a little different, and so people get into that, and then, you know, you want to learn more and more and more about the internal workings of X, Y, and Z, and suddenly you've, Picked up a new ideology on the way, uh, which again I don't. I don't want to come off as you know, like oh, it could happen to anybody, uh, because it couldn't. But it's not. It's not quite the same process that we normally think of, or is kind of the main narrative when it comes to radicalization, especially on 4chan.
0: So then if if we're describing the space as you know hobbyist enthusiast somewhat apolitical the the radicalization kind of takes a long time it's it's not as kind of spike it's not as you know quick as as interacting on poll um, how do we describe Kay's response to the buffalo shooting or uh Sandy Hook, or a, a highly violent, or Uvalde, so sort of a kind of highly violent mass shooting that kind of forces the gun debate into the center. Like, how, what is their reaction there? Is it, you know, let's just start there. What is that that kind of reaction to mass shootings and to sort of acts of mass violence that are using automatic weapons?
1: Yeah, so this stuff is is really interesting both and in, I I might expand the scope here a little bit because it's interesting to see how differently different uh, factions, different communities within this sort of firearms enthusiast, I, I guess we'll, we can just keep using the word enthusiast, firearms enthusiast world, this kind of gun culture, online space, the uh, reactions to these sort of things vary so much um and uh most of it i would say in in any space you know again they're not they're not like the poll guys they don't they don't get excited when someone posts that they're gonna do it uh they're not you know grabbing their popcorn for it because it's again they don't have that external component to it uh they broadly you know kind of react how these more uh, these more fringe parts of online gun culture really just react the same as uh, like any old chud you know well if someone with a gun had been there then then it would have been different and uh, the Uvalde thing specifically I, they're really pissed about because kind of the base level um and this is just a part of gun culture in general too, but they're they're not they're not exactly pro pro police um and when you kind of think of it in the historical perspective, the role that Ruby Ridge and Waco played and kind of the panic over gun control in America and uh the view of the federal government by a lot of these more um more like extreme right-wing libertarian types uh so they they're just like oh well you see this is why we need all this stuff that we're talking about because it's you know the cops aren't going to do anything like it's and then like on the other side this is actually this was the video that i saw that uh made me first think about talking about this some more It was a, and I'll drop a link in our chat, but there's this uh, YouTube channel. It's a big kind of gun YouTube type of thing. Um, T-Rex Arms, he's, I I could do a whole episode about this guy um, and kind of what what he shows about gun culture overall. But uh, this blew my mind when I saw it because this is kind of an online milieu that I'm, i consider myself pretty familiar with and this shocked me um so this was on june 4th so i think it was one day after the uvalde shooting uh daniel defense ddm4 v7 unboxing kidding shooting and opinions how well does it shoot right out of the box which uh for you know any listeners who might not know the uh Daniel Defense DDM4v7 was the rifle that was used by uh Salvador Ramos in Uvalde, And and that that kind of stuff does happen. Um and I, I think there's you see it a lot less from kind of the the K milieu, because they're again mostly just shit posting about guns. Um and they're Introducing something like that into the discourse is a it's a very intentional thing to do' um, you're, you're not just doing that on a whim you're trying to very specifically change how these things are being talked about and change how your the community that listens to you is thinking about these things uh, so those things are a rarity but they they do happen and that's kind of part of Sort of the online community that branches off from K.
0: Let's let's explore that. So we put a pin in in K. Let's kind of look at the overall influence of K. So so if we kind of follow a traditional framework of understanding, you know, it goes from K to kind of meet space or in real life movements and part of the well actually let's let's start there is Kay's influence mostly from on the right or on the left or is it more universal um so that I I think
1: if you'd asked me that question in like 2019 I would have said only the right um gun 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 buyer demographics have changed a lot um just over the past two years and seem it really seems like they're gonna keep on changing in that way but it's mostly on the right uh just because gun culture uh as this kind of you know broad term is primarily a right-wing phenomenon uh just because they're the people who are really uh sorry can you repeat the end of that question I just completely blanked on that
0: no it's okay um so do we see Kay's influence on both the left and the right before we sort of explore specific movements because I think um for me like the people that I follow on Twitter like I I see a lot of like gun culture elements like so uh in Colorado we have a a llama ranch run by um this trans woman and she is very much into gun culture right so like every i mean it it's, it's very much defined in the, in the in the sense of self defense and protecting your land and protecting your livestock but it's like it's it, it's definitely an account that you wouldn't expect to be into gun culture and you wouldn't expect them to be included in something that's coming from a chan like like that is kind of the, the stereotypical thinking or the simplistic thinking. And I, I think for my curiosity, it's, you know, as you pointed out post 2019, and as you get into kind of 2020 and 2021, are you seeing that gun culture influence from K on the left, or is it more, as you kind of already pointed out, more isolated to the right? Yeah, so it's, it used to be, and
1: Kay's influence kind of has started to impact the world a lot more broadly as it's kind of fanned out from that only uh, right wing type of thing. Like Kay, before, I would say, 2017, 2018, you know, kind of when all the chans really started to come into popular conscience it was really it was a small space of not even like necessarily people that you would see out at a out at a range or something i mean those are because it also has it has an incredibly small user base too uh even compared to uh like pole pole has like i think it's four or five times the amount of daily users that k does Uh, so it was very insular before that and kind of as they their sort of aesthetic and their approach to these types of things has spread beyond the board um it's influenced sort of both sides of your gun communities and part of that is a larger issue and this is a a bit of a personal gripe but but um kind of the left the push to create a leftist sort of knowledge base for firearms and resources for people to defend themselves uh if they feel that's a need has really just replicated um the right wing gun culture <laughs> writ large with you know you throw some some different symbols on it, and I think there's some ways in which that can be really really good um i think if you're kind of utilizing and like i'm thinking of one person in particular another person with a gun youtube channel uh she goes by tactical girlfriend and she kind of utilizes that whole like 80s vaporwave aesthetic as something to attract you know viewers uh for people to go look at that and generally is one of the probably one of the only people on YouTube who I would tell, uh, you know, a complete noob to listen to about firearms, but really Kay's influence. Uh, people hit a lot on the aesthetics of it, especially with the boogaloo, uh, which I know we'll get to, we'll get to those boys eventually, but, um, more so I think than the, the aesthetics, it's the, approach to firearms.
0: So we've kind of mentioned the Boogaloo. Let's kind of explore that. You know, we we start at K and then we start going into the militia movement and to the Boogaloo. When you look at kind of the Boogaloo Boys, you know, from simply their aesthetic and their fit and their design, you know how does how can you can kind of understand the influence of K on the boogaloo? Like simply from before we get into the ideology and sort of uh, the other things of it. Like from a purely aesthetic and kind of visual aspect of it, how do we, how can we kind of link K to the boogaloo? If if there's an, even a linkage there. Yeah. So the the aesthetics are
1: the most obvious link between the two um sort of this just generally shitposty attitude towards the appearance of militarism I guess I could say um that's really it's rare in American paramilitaries and this is what um I mean I, I do other stuff now but my I started my career in extremism research as a, a militia person. All all I did was militia stuff for a while, and they, the Boogaloo is not. It doesn't fit kind of the, the aesthetic of these things because uh, you know you'd see. I'm I'm in Virginia. Virginia had a huge resurgence in its militia movement uh, during 2020. And it was a lot more like rural, small groups. Uh, there, were, I mean, there was some significant Boogaloo presence throughout the state, but the uh, those guys, you know, they really try to replicate sort of this, I'm trying to think of what the right word to use for it would be. Yeah, this like a uh, really put together uh, kind of ideal of what, you know, a soldier should look like, a real American. And Boogaloo Boys will have, you know, anime girl patches on plate carriers and they wear the Hawaiian shirts. And that that is all K. And a lot of the, the um, kind of like vaporwave 80s stuff comes from K., Um, Mostly just because in the 70s and the 80s were the the times in history when you looked coolest shooting a gun. But yeah, I'd say the kind of the initial thing that you see when you look at the Boogaloo is this obvious aesthetic influence from K, this very clear through line uh, that really differentiates the Boogaloo from A lot of similar American paramilitary movements but beyond even that there's this this kind of gear obsession this uh real like nitty-gritty everyone's arguing about what type of what to put on what gun and what type of plate carrier to buy and that like that is a a big k thing too um sort of the the more I'll go ahead and explain this term too. So FUDs within gun culture are your old guys, uh, your guys who you're back in my day, guys who are really into 1911s and M1 Garands stuff like that. And that's the real different differentiation between these Boog types and those guys, where their kind of general attitude is well, X thing is good enough, and like Boog boys go out and spend money on on night vision like i don't know pvs 14 is like four thousand dollars right now um because they they're oriented towards a, a much different ideal of you know the the soldier the militiaman, the whatever word they choose to use
0: So before we kind of dig into this, uh, is the word tactical kind of fair to use to describe the Boogaloo guys? Because it's like in every picture that I see of them, like it it almost seems like it's it's very much online, very online, very anime kind of cosplay, I guess. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it doesn't like it it kind of just burns a hole in my eyes to look at the picture like you know the I I think uh, off the top of my head uh, the George Floyd protests where it's a guy wearing this insane magnum pi floral print and then over that he has the the plate carrier and then these kind of the pepe badges and the kind of obscene like I want to say it's a no not an m4 ar anyway it's a long barrel gun and it it has all these attachments that you don't really i don't think you need um but uh yeah sorry that was a tangent (laughs) um
1: no no it's fine because i i think the same thing every time i'm pulling up right now actually some pictures i have from uh lobby day in richmond this past year and i'm gonna see if Yeah, so I've I've got the Boog Boys here. Each one of these guys, so the guy in the middle that I've got right here, probably is wearing around, I would say, three thousand plus dollars in kit overall, Um, which you don't you don't see with the the sort of the older people who are into this stuff, the the last generation. Uh, you know, those guys had no, because like, why, I mean, I, I get the, again, I, I get the urge to be into this stuff. Um, If I had enough money, I would probably buy nods too. It would, it would be fun, but they, they see it also as like a, a thing that you, that you need, like tactically for, of course, the titular boogaloo.
0: So, I mean, like what, when we look at this and when we say aesthetics, right, it's all about the image. Like for when we, when we kind of dig deeper into the reality, are they, are they trained? Like, are they going to the range? Are they practicing movements? Like, is it really just purely about taking the aesthetics from K and bringing them into the real world for the Boogaloo?
1: that's really, it's a case by case thing. Um, you know, for every guy who is wearing $2,000 in cry gear and has never been to a range. There's some guy who, who has, um, I know there was one person who was working with a lot of, uh, kind of militia adjacent and boogaloo adjacent groups in Virginia, who was ex, uh, Army Special Forces, and it's become a lot easier to get this sort of training too. Uh, to get kind of practical firearms training beyond your basic concealed handgun class, I can think of three places within driving distance of me that offer things from you know basic rifle courses all the way up to. Squad level tactics and force on force scenario stuff. Um, so I'd say I'd say broadly, your your new generation is more trained than your past generations.
0: And then to sort of close out this this kind of thread, where are they getting the money? <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, when when I started writing down the questions and I, I kind of asked this on Twitter and um, the the real life example I use is that every time that I go to rei or Cabela's or the Bass pro shop uh, it these are the only three stores um, that I go to that have this ability to like make me have that the PTSD of going back like of to that era of when I was working three to four jobs like it, it's just like everything is so expensive and i think you 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 kind of touched on like this idea that uh, the night night vision lenses are $4000 which is that's insane for like one piece of kit to be $4000 and that's before like you know the $500 plate carrier the plate the gun the boots um where are they getting all this money is are these guys like just you know individually wealthy or so upper class or are they just like throwing it on the Visa and throwing it on the MasterCard and be like, whatever? <laughs> so I think it's a lot
1: of different things. Um, some, some people will just save up over a period of time because like, you know, this is their, this is their number one hobby. It's, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analog. It's like really a collector of anything. Uh, so some of them are like saving up. Some of them are buying knockoffs, um, which I personally think is fine. None of you are ever going to use that in combat. If you want to look cool, choose the thing that's cheap and look co- looks cool. But the uh, the more expensive stuff, it's it's again, all kind of situational. And some of it, some of it raises more eyebrows uh, than others like PBS 14. I mean, that's three, $4,000 for last generation night vision capabilities. And then you see people post pictures in a Have you ever, have you ever seen the quad nods before the four tube night oh, vision yeah. goggles? They give oh. you, it's like, they look so cool. I'm going to be honest. They, they look really sick. Um, and I I've seen guys with those on before, and those are thirty five thousand dollars. Wait,
0: hold on, thirty five thousand. I mean, these are like night vision goggles that are kind of being sent to Ukraine and being used by the military. Like they're they're higher grade. Yeah. Okay, the the quad
1: tube ones. Uh, I mean, you know, that's not even no no infantryman in the U.S. military is. Getting that unless they're at a significantly higher tier of uh, kind of the the military, like this stuff is. It's it's also like it's weird because a lot of the pricing on stuff is weird because things like things like these quad tube night vision goggles are made by I believe the main manufacturer is still l3 harris um which is a a huge defense company so a lot of the prices aren't probably correct to how much the things actually cost because they're selling them to the government but the uh, there's also kind of this big diy i I don't know if that's (laughs) that's the best word to use for it but diy sort of thing in these spaces like you can buy a you can buy a pvs 14 parts kit and uh get a tube and build it yourself it's it's a little bit harder it's not going to be as good as nice new night vision um but again this is ultimately a toy like whatever they may think about it ultimately it's a toy and it doesn't matter and so that's that's part of it there's also some things that like Especially on social media, a lot of the really cool stuff that people have, they're they have it on loan. Like they know a guy who has one. Um, like a big thing recently, the Army or Six Hour released their rifle that they had uh, submitted and won the Army's Next Generation Service Weapon contract for. Um, the Sig Spear, and like suddenly, there's videos and reviews everywhere. And there was one rifle that was privately owned for for every single one of those. It's a a gunsmithing shop out in Nevada had it. So some of the really like cost prohibitive stuff, especially when it's being displayed like that, works like that.
0: Would you consider this? A technically astute community like uh, I, I see this in in infosec and, and my day job day career community a lot which is kind of the idea of 3d printing and uh, you know obviously like 3d printing gets argued as like oh it's gonna it's really nice to print off parts uh, it's cheap it's anybody can use it but also you know, inevitably, you get into this idea of, you can replace gun parts, you can build guns, you can, uh, you know, literally run this kind of basic armory out of your garage using, you know, 3D parts or 3D printing. So um, how kind of technically aware and technically astute is K and sort of, you know, it's gun enthusiasm? You know, is it is it really just all about the gun or is it also about that technology to kind of preserve and develop firearms? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of
1: both. Um, the big thing is that compared to kind of past manifestations of gun culture, it is this certain flavor that you see in the Boogaloo and in and these other online spaces is the most technically astute Uh, maybe I don't know besides when you were gunsmithing was a trade that you had to do by hand those guys might have been more technically astute but like these are people who are fascinated with uh, how like the most efficient and best way to set up a weapon for different purposes and they've they've gotten a lot of uh like military terminology that they use and like one way that k's really wormed its way into both the left and the right of gun culture is a a lot of those guys really do i mean they know their stuff like uh there's the famous in in certain places or infamous uh k gear paste bin and it's you know basic stuff like uh an entry level guide to what gear you need and it's kind of like buy this stuff first then this stuff second this is the place to get this stuff from this is what you need on a rifle so on so forth and uh that that's really where they set themselves apart from these other paramilitary esque movements and uh these other right wing gun enthusiasts that they yes, yeah, so like this stuff has, I mean I'm just I pulled it up to look at, and the body armor section is let's see, how many paragraphs that this is? It's like multiple sections. Different cuts of plates. Uh, which cut to choose? Plate quality. Uh, factors to consider when assessing plate quality. Material. Uh, steel versus ceramic. Weight, thickness, ballistic rating. Different types of curve. Origin of make. Design science. And that's that's kind of how they approach everything. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately these are these are the guys who have the time to be on four chain a lot. Um, they are yeah, they're 4chan guys. They they don't have anything else to do. They're if, if this is what they're interested enough to join this community, like they they really do put effort into understanding that sort of stuff. And it's it's led to people approaching kind of the uh, the question of like what what does a responsible gun owner need? in a different way, in both a, both a very, I think, overall helpful way, and also in, in a very bad way. And uh, we're still not quite sure how that's going to shake out societally in the end.
0: Interesting. So something that, that I can kind of find interesting in our conversation so far is that you please correct me if I'm wrong, are kind of separating out the militia movement from the Boogaloo. And then kind of pivoting to the militia movement, do you see Kay's influence or is the militia movement kind of, you know, it's old timers, guys from the 90s, guys from the early 2000s, and it's kind of walled off from the influence of the online of of Kay?
1: Yeah, so... I do kind of separate those two things, which is honestly more of a personal thing, like a specific taxonomy. Um, I, I guess my, my personal view on what constitutes a militia or part of the militia movement is that there, there has to be a, uh, a, a group, like, you know, a militia, an actual group of people. Um, and like, Boog boys, I think, are a cultural and I, we might get some Twitter replies for this, so brace yourself. But um, the Boogaloo, I think, in its long-term effects, because we don't really see them organizing at the same rate as we did in 2020 and uh, kind of within that sort of civil unrest time period, if you will, uh, where people were looking for things like that we've kind of seen them organizing independently a less since then but I think the cultural implications of this is your younger generation of who is going to be forming these paramilitary groups and forming militias has much larger implications and as for like the 90s guys um this is you're Set me up perfectly to give my whole militia spiel here. So, the '90s for a lot of scholars, the '90s militia movement is where the militia movement ends, or kind of the militia movement writ large, or whatever. And they also, again, you're kind of big time scholars, and your sort of generally accepted dictionary definition is that. Militias are anti-government groups of people with guns, uh, which which means absolutely nothing. Like anti-government for for what reason? Like I I don't like the government that much. I'm not in a militia, but the militia movement from the 90s or even from sort of the paramilitary movements that surrounded the more overt white power movement in the 60s and the 70s uh like i know you've had kathleen bellew on here and she's she's done so much good work on those groups and i think there's a very clear through line from that to the 90s stuff to the um to the 2008 uh post 2008 when obama got elected was The birth of a lot of the militia groups the large national militia groups that we know today and even i and this is more of my personal thing uh so people can take issue with this if they want but i think that cultural through line is a is a constant in this country i mean this is a a thing that we have kind of built our cultural identity on in many ways uh that you know, every American is ready to, you know, pick up a gun and do a Red Dawn or whatever your particular flavor of that scenario is. And these, these things, whether it's, you know, Sovereign Citizens in the 90s or whether it's the Boogaloo today are just kind of the culture that shapes around that stuff because they don't they don't have different goals than other militia groups and ultimately the goal of most domestic american militia groups is to either in some cases which overall are very rare to take action against the government for perceived grievances real or otherwise or it's to pretty much act as auxiliary law enforcement like this is this is the one thing that that never changes in the militia movement um no matter what aesthetic you place on it it's that 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 role is sort of auxiliary state support and uh like yeah civilian run law enforcement in the in the bad way, it should be clear. Not in the not in the good way. Is the constant like the the one meme that's probably survived all the way from the the '90s until now in these gun spaces is uh, rooftop Koreans. This and like when you look at what the Boogaloo Boys are doing at protests in the summer of 2020 uh, this whole protecting property thing and you look at that stuff and then you look at uh, sort of this the first time that the post 2008 militia movement really reared its head uh, in Ferguson in 2014 they were doing the same thing when you look back to the, the white leagues of reconstruction they were ultimately looking at the same goal uh so i think kind of viewing viewing these cultures as totalizing as like a whole thing is is overall damaging to how we understand what what brings people into these movements uh what the goals of the movements are and how do we stop that from happening
0: so uh Something that I I kind of find interesting that you you pointed out is that this idea of auxiliary state support, but in the most negative, in a negative way, and like immediately when you said that, I was like, "Are these guys racists?" Like, like, um, I I, that's really crass, and I apologize, but like, how? No, no, it's a valid question. Like you mentioned, Fergus, like they're in 2014, the appearance at Ferguson, and then during the 2020 George Floyd protests and the BLM protests, like, like my memory of it is that like, I couldn't separate out or I shouldn't say separate it. My assumption was that they were kind of racist, like this line of protecting property, like, Oh, okay. What does that mean? Do you have a willingness to, who are you going to shoot? Dot, dot, dot. Right. And like how, like, Racist or not racist? Are these movements like if if they conceptualize themselves as like auxiliary state support? Is it is it like a kind of an expression of white supremacy, or is it more like more of an incidental racism, or is its racism is not even in this kind of uh, belief system? It.
1: I'm trying to think of how best to approach this it just to to lay the groundwork here it is racist it's very racist it's not racist in the way that you know shouting slurs at people is racist it's racist in the way that some some of those people and I, I say this as someone who has spent too much time around these guys uh i mean i i went to so many militia events in from the beginning of 2020 really up until i mean if if they're still holding events within traveling distance of me i normally go and a lot of them truly don't think of it as racist they don't think of themselves as racist structurally it's fulfilling uh, these same ends that the more explicitly racist movements have done, and it varies from group to group and from state to state. And I mean, you know, if I if I got a few of those guys, if I was hanging out with some of those guys, and they had a few too many beers, and I started talking about rap music. They might not seem so well meaning anymore. But I think viewing, viewing it as racist in the same way that joining a neo, like being a skinhead is, again, kind of conceptually limits us here, uh, which is why this, this is really where a lot of my interest slash obsession with the Reconstruction period comes from. Uh, like I know you've been reading some Eric Foner lately and this is really a a can and i don't want to make it sound like there is a direct net like social networking link between like this guy talked to this guy talk to this guy but culturally it, it's really the exact same thing that a lot of those again, like the White Leagues, the kind of first iteration of the Klan was trying to accomplish. And you see this in the sort of geography of the militia movement, too. Um, You see militias most prominently um, in the South, in states that were once on the frontier, the the quote-unquote frontier. And you see it in somewhere like like Oregon, for example, uh, which has various right-wing paramilitary groups, as we're all aware of, for for better or for worse. But they, Oregon used to be an explicitly whites-only state. And when you look at the Second Amendment in a historical context, which is a a loaded thing to do, if you were calling up a, a town's, militia in 1780 something there's only so many people you could be killing there's all the other white guys who live in your town with you and then there's everyone else who actually lives here and like that is that's really like the the thing behind and i hesitate to say its the thing behind all of gun culture but in as much as you can find one thing behind all of this obsession with tactical gear and readiness and you know whatever your preferred method of societal collapse is whether it's the zombie apocalypse or the the boogaloo's happening or the china's attack the commies are doing it you know whatever it is it's kind of the same, this thing that we've baked into our national culture of, uh, you know, the the unconquered frontier, the citizen soldier, so on and so forth, that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it, in as much as it ever existed, like, but it, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now, but that is, that's kind of the historical
0: through line there. I mean, I, I think you touched on something important, though. Like, when we think about gun culture and its influence, like, I think as a person of color, like, this is very anecdotal. Like, I find gun culture kind of off-putting because of, like, looking at the Boogaloo and looking at the militia movement and its ties. Like, even though they're not necessarily explicitly racist, but their ties and their kind of positioning to neo-nazis or to more kind of explicitly racist organizations and like i i think of like uh philando castile right so th- that to me was so fascinating that here's a person of color who owns a gun who is following the law following every procedure every piece of process appropriately he gets shot uh in an unjustified manner. And then suddenly there's nothing to be said from the NRA or nothing to be said from these online spaces. And it's, it it just, for me, like when I think about gun culture, it, what it really is saying is white uh, cis gun ownership, right? It, It kind of, my feeling at least is that it excludes people of color, trans, LGBTQ, what have you. And like kind of bringing it back to the boogaloo and, and kind of the notion of of, of racism, it, would it be more accurate to say that it's exclusionary? Like it, it, they don't go and look for black people to join the boogaloo. They don't go and look for people of color. Like how how would we kind of describe that kind of, that part of its ideology? I guess I think it's it's
1: less so that there's because the boogaloo. I mean, they have sort of this vaguely accelerationist, sort of libertarian kind of ideology. Some of them call themselves anarchists. Uh, They're not anarchists, but it's this weird kind of mishmashing of political beliefs that's ultimately pretty nonsensical. And I think it's more so that you're, you're not going to really arrive at that space as an person of color for i mean exactly the reasons you were talking about i mean i i i tell everyone all the time like the only reason that i could go to so many armed militia meetings and just be like oh i'm just hanging out here and no one asked me any questions about it is because i'm i'm a white dude like that's and to kind of not like you you have to not like there's some sort of biologically deterministic part of this where like if you're a white guy you're gonna be be more into these ideas. But there's there's certain parts of it that really I mean yeah, when they really start posting about like oh well when when the riots happen I'm gonna put on my my plates and my night vision goggles and like if you're a person of color you know what that means. Like it's all it's all this very not even like well-coded language it's nothing clever it's it's very obvious what it is that they're getting at um and I, I think sometimes it's they don't even necessarily realize what the implications of that are and sometimes they they really do and that's really the ultimate issue with the boogaloo overall and also just kind of gun culture in general there's a lot of people who look at this space just like we're looking at it now and see these same things. And as we're sitting here and going, Hmm, racism seems bad. They're going, Oh, sweet. Racism. I love racism. That's my favorite thing. These guys have so many guns and I could make them so racist. And so there's a lot more, I mean, with the boogaloo, you see it a lot more with uh, sort of the the skull mask type Seeing those accelerationist ideas with your more average gun guy, you see it as you know they. Someone starts talking about, and this is what the Boogaloo was ultimately born out of. These kind of these kind of end times narratives that are always happening in in gun culture, especially in the more tactically oriented gun culture. Because ultimately, if you're if you're a civilian and you want to collect and own a lot of guns I think it's fine uh, I own multiple firearms and I shoot once a week like these but also I have one black rifle one AR-15 because once like once I've got one it's like okay well if you really need this you got it now I want the guns that are like fun and cool and these guys who are obsessed with this like very tactically oriented preparedness, you got to be prepared for something. You need something to justify again, the $4,000 that you're spending on night vision or the $300 cry combat pants that you just bought. And they, uh, you know, this manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, originally in the nineties, it was, sort of that ruby bridge or waco scenario the feds are going to come and do whatever and then the the really bizarre one honestly that i think is very much in the same cultural vein is and i'm sure do you remember the whole uh sort of zombie apocalypse phenomenon in the early 2010s as like a marketing tool
0: Yeah, so, like, Walking Dead and all. Yeah, Walking Dead, you
1: had World War Z, you know, all this zombie media. And then, like, it kind of starts as an internet bit that people are talking about. Like, oh, I got to get ready for the zombie apocalypse. And then it becomes a lot of people's sort of introduction to these, like, prepper spaces and this sort of apocalyptic thinking that I have all this stuff to prepare for X event. And it was... You know, very silly. And I think most people involved probably were aware on some level that zombies were not going to eat all of us. But like, i I always wonder, and I would love to really dig dig into this on the more like OSEN side of things, but like where did where did that even come from? Cause like the places where you see it coming up online and the way that when you look back at some of the old uh, like air15.com which is a obviously a gun forum is when you look back at those old posts from like 2011 2012 it does it doesn't take a genius to figure out they're not talking about zombies
0: that's interesting to me that you mentioned the zombie craze because so much of that was exaggerated, like not in touch with reality. Because like I even remember like World War Z was uh it was it was it, it never touched on guns. It was always about like what you really need is a trowel and a shovel and and basic yeah, medical and you need like a a a shovel to hit the zombies in the head with or like yeah. a, a
1: cool <laughs> machete maybe. I mean I remember I was like pretty young at the time that all that stuff was happening. But um And this was sort of my introduction to this broader world too. Like me and my friends met some weird guy at an army surplus store that we liked to go to. And we like all bought these dumbass looking machetes from him because he was like, zombie apocalypse is going to happen any day now. And I mean, we were all like, sure, man, whatever. But it, it was all, it was a lot less serious than this stuff. And I'm really just, just fascinated by how that fits into all of this because it's a big step to go from again like doing world war z or walking dead like cutting off zombie heads with machetes to this sort of modern online tactical space where it's the uh, what people call like the the cult of the operator and such
0: that phrase cult of the operator like it just It it blows my mind because it's like when I think of an operator, I don't think of the gun or the armor. I think of all that like supporting infrastructure, like, you know, medevac, intelligence, like everything around that shooter. But it it just seems like the the cult might actually be the the accurate word here. Um, Well, yeah, the operator stuff is fascinating to
1: me as well, because again, I mean, special forces units are not just like some guys They're they have this massive logistical support network and i mean i would argue that kind of you know modern special operations its greatest achievement is establishing those intelligence networks and those communications networks and transportation like the uh oh what's the what's the unit called uh 160th soar special operations aviation and reconnaissance are the dudes who fly the little little bird helicopters and like they're way more important to an to an operation overall than like one of the guys with a rifle and there's yeah there's some interesting there's some interesting historical stuff there too with kind of how that fits into this sort of chauvinist ideal of citizen soldiers and keeping order through paramilitaries.
0: So speaking of all that, let's, uh, I want to maybe kind of switch footing from, from Kay, the Boogaloo, the militia movement now into the normies. So I think one of the articles you sent over that I've kind of found, found very fascinating was how Kay, got mainstreamed via facebook um mm-hmm. which i now now that we kind of are talking about it it, it just seems so like stereotypical oh facebook um, mainstreamed an extremist yeah. movement like huh? Oh, cool um <clears throat> sorry I, um so I, i'm kind of curious like could you walk us through like, what does K look like when it's away from the boards and onto normie platforms, onto, like, Facebook?
1: So The K stuff, as, as it kind of made its way to Facebook, you know, is through a lot of those Boogaloo groups and this this kind of big resurgence in interest in this stuff. Like, a lot of the things like, the, the gear and stuff that these guys buy was really hard to find, like, even just a couple years ago. I mean, I've kind of always been sort of interested in this kind of stuff. And, like, if you wanted to buy body armor in 2017, it was going to be really hard to do overall as a civilian and to get, like, good quality stuff. And now, like, it's... I search body armor and it comes up and like sales for all that stuff just skyrocketed again with i mean part of it was definitely the the pandemic but the much larger part of it and kind of how it wormed its way into facebook was the 2020 george floyd uprising stuff as those guys who have all have all the information and have sort of the quote-unquote expertise um, compared to your Facebook Meemaws and Pap Paps are like going on there to all these other people who are experiencing the same racially charged, let's say, fears. And they're like, oh, look, got all this stuff for you. This is what you need if you want to be safe. And then, you know, those guys tell their friends, well, so-and-so knows a lot about this. We're in a Facebook group together and they told me to get this stuff. And and from there, we kind of see as K has moved, it's kind of wormed its way into all these different cultural sectors of gun culture. Uh, so again, like the Instagram operator types are all taking the, The memes and the aesthetics and whereas a lot of your people who are less interested in the aesthetic appeal of their movement are taking a lot of the information and some of this stuff is ultimately it's it's dangerous like it's it's at the very least it complicates sort of your your threat model because if I have, and like I've been in these situations in the course of my work before, where like there is a big old group of very heavily armed right wing slash fascist types who are real mad at you, and that's a that's a very different situation if it's just a bunch of old guys who forgot that he has a stub nose revolver in his glove box as opposed to people who are wearing body armor and people who are wearing or who have IFACs on them and know how to use them or people who grasp the very basics of shoot, move, communicate. Like, as these, these kind of bad actors go into these spaces, like, to use your... I mean, it's really like a Russian nesting doll situation. You've got your, your Boogaloo is most closely connected to Kay's culture. And then you've got your skull mask trying to go with the Boog boys. And then you've got your um, sort of regular Facebook posters. And they're getting this knowledge too. And it becomes this idea of, I mean, you know, right wing paramilitary forces becomes a lot harder to tackle with not a lot of that stuff or even i mean i, I don't i don't think lone wolf is at all a useful term but these these uh things were perpetrated by lone actors it complicates that too um peyton gendron the buffalo shooter was in a, a lot of these sort of gear enthusiast spaces online and he was shot in the plate by a security guard and when you look through the stuff that he was writing about it he knew that was going to happen he was like yeah this security guard probably carries a nine millimeter I'll wear this and then he'll shoot me and I, I won't die and I'll be able to keep on doing my racist terror attack And when you start incorporating stuff like that, and when these these things start to move into all these different uh, reactionary spaces, I mean, I th- I always think of it kind of generally, generationally too, because sort of I feel like it's important to differentiate between the the outright fascist groups and you're you're real you're real guys you know like you're you're adam waffens you're the base your traditionalist workers party those kinds of things and you're just violent reactionaries which is most of the militia movement but like we've seen what just violent reactionaries can do and we saw that on january 6th and when you start thinking of right-wing extremism and these sort of violent reactionary movements as generational the you know kind of threat model 15 years from now starts to become slightly more clear and I I think this also something that uh, Kathleen Bellew's work has really helped highlight is the general generational nature of these movements which is also how a lot of sort of I don't like the word extremist, but let's say fringe political movements across the world work. Uh, Like, you know, if you're in the such and such communist party somewhere in Europe, there's a chance that someone in your family was or that there's older members of that who you can talk to and learn things from and so on and so forth. And that doesn't exist as much on the left in America for a variety of reasons but it does exist on the right like i mean i always think of unite the right as this really important uh sort of torch passing moment on the right where you had these these 70s and 80s white power movement guys who had been talking to these young shit posters and were kind of like all right this is your show now And as this sort of paramilitary space and this sort of violent uh, reactionary space transitions from a more abstract kind of view of the end times, whether it's, you know, government's going to come take our guns at some point, or the zombies are going to eat my brains, to this is what you do in response to riots, and like, even, I mean, you know, you get a group of 12. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the situations that I found myself in during the summer of 2020. And I mean, you get 12 dudes with rifles and body armor and probably most importantly, radios talking to each other. And again, shoot, move, communicate that's not an easy thing to deal with. One, one guy running his car into a crowd is already not something that's, that a lot of these movements are really equipped to counter effectively. Um, and that's, I mean, no shame on them for that. It's a, it's a hard thing to counter. We're not in, you know, this isn't Syria. You can't just be like, oh, I bet that was a VBIED and like, shoot the car so yeah i think i think the real kind of threat of this stuff moving out because i think also i mean kind of on the other hand like if you do want to be prepared and and part of this is that i mean you know and with the the guys i look at i have some some different security concerns than jeff the insurance salesman But I think, I mean, you know, if it's better to, if you're, if you have a gun, you should learn about the other stuff too. You don't have to learn how to work a radio or how like squad level tactics, but you should at least be learning basic trauma first aid. I mean, I think that's like one genuinely good thing that these people have put out into the world is this sort of expectation that you'll know how to use a tourniquet. But as we see these guys become again, these people who uh, like the really big Virginia boogaloo boy, Mike Dunn, who was um, featured in a vice documentary, the best thing that can happen to you. If you are a right wing extremist of any shape or kind, he, uh, he was, he was my age. I know Mike Dunn's ex-girlfriend from high school. Like, uh, we're we're not from near each other, but yeah, so these guys are eventually they're going to be they're going to take the place of your kind of old guy fucking buffoons that are currently the face of the paramilitary right wing, like your Oath Keepers who are spending God, like seven, what was I forget what it was, but they spent like so much money after january 6th at either an olive garden or a red lobster it was an olive (laughs) garden (laughs) yeah an olive garden they spent like five thousand dollars at an olive garden i
0: that boggles my mind how do you spend i don't know how you do that it's just a lot of red wine i guess i don't know (laughs) um something i I was
1: hungry after january 6 too but i couldn't spend five thousand dollars
0: at the olive garden (laughs) um Something that you, you touched on that really fascinates me uh is this idea of a generational divide, which you you've already kind of discussed, but this idea of acquiring knowledge. And for me, like examining the Boogaloo movement, you know, they're so such a product of that online and such a product of self-education, like it almost it almost makes it seem like you're kind of hinting at they're more dangerous because of, you know, the, the willingness to kind of learn and to kind of educate themselves about firearms and about, you know, body armor and about uh, dealing with kind of trauma and combat trauma, uh, physical trauma. Yeah,
1: so they, one second, let me make sure. Yeah, there we go. I had to plug up my computer. I think I should be good now. but yeah they i mean a lot of these things that they're kind of enthusiastic about are force multipliers um these you know body body armor like nij certified level four plates are a very clear force multiplier like if you can get shot and keep going that makes you a lot more dangerous. And uh, communication is a force multiplier. Night vision. I mean, if you know, there's one group of people who have a lot of have a lot of night vision and have experience. More importantly, shooting and moving around under night vision, which is not easy to do. That's something that really, I mean, you can't counter. That well, if you're just again, if they're these kind of reactionary paramilitary type things, and they're still manifesting themselves as that, if you're at a protest and the lights go out and a bunch of people have night vision, you're, I'm allowed to cu- to cuss on this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, it's of a, course, a family <laughs> podcast. All right, yeah, no, you're not You're gonna <laughs> fucking die, like. I mean, this is, again, where that cult of the operator stuff comes in. Like, this was how we continuously, with really large overall success rates, like, we're taking out HVTs in Iraq and Afghanistan, places like that. Like, these basic things that a less equipped force have, and I want to make it clear, too, like, I'm not arguing for any kind of kind of arms race between like not saying that leftists should all start buying night vision goggles all of a sudden because this might happen but it's something to be mindful of that and it's something to keep an keep an eye on more specifically because who knows like maybe i i don't know what's going to happen a decade from now maybe we will there will be a whole new type of gun guy that will emerge out of the earth fully formed. And we'll have to deal with that when that happens. But for right now, it's really, it's the K stuff and the Boog stuff. And I mean, even if like they aren't coming there to shoot you, if these right wing movements have people who are knowledgeable about intelligence collection. Um, if they can, you know, do all this, all this nerd stuff that the K guys are really into, which I I'm also into. Like, it's you can learn how to use an SDR as a um, IMSI catcher, like these are those sorts of things that really tip the scales of what again your more extreme actors are able to do with kind of the broader reactionary right uh like this is something that again to go back to January 6th like this was the thing they were they were trying to do where i mean i i was i reported on January 6th in person and uh like i remember telling people that night, like, yeah, it was crazy. You know, you're standing on steps of the Capitol. Some proud boy grabs three confused old people and pulls them up to the riot line. And that's like kind of this small scale example of this process that happens where these guys with a more concrete ideology and political goal are using your, your broader reactionary milieu to facilitate that goal. And once they have people who aren't just Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, a bunch of dumbasses, and they have people who know how to even just do basic encryption on a radio or, like, have... Because another thing, like, K and kind of the Boogaloo and all of these more... I guess the word would be like fundamentalist libertarian types are very worried about the feds all the time because uh, partially because they think, you know, that the feds are always going to come after the law abiding gun owners and partially because they're doing illegal stuff that feds come after you for. (laughs) But um, they, they like exchange information about OPSEC and digital security and, all that stuff, and I mean, this is something that I've talked to uh, former former guests on the show Emmy a lot about. Is this like we don't we don't really have a uh, intelligence collection process, if that's the word you want to use, in this sort of research space to deal with a a extreme right that has actual good opsec.
0: That's a good point. Like, I, I never thought about that. Like, like, reviewing kind of federal cases from public sources, of course. Uh, it, it always struck me, it was always like the dumbasses that got popped. Like the guy who has like a copy of Mein Kampf on his bed, uh picture of Hitler and like the Nazi flag and he's in San Diego and he's a marine so that's I and mean, he's just kind of kind of an idiot and and those are the ones that yeah. get popped or uh I think the govern uh governor Widmer case is pretty interesting like again it's the feds running some, like a snitch and then uh, wherever that case might go um so yeah, the, uh, the only way that they know how to solve a crime
1: no offense to any of our federal agents who might be listening (laughs) we're going to get an email
0: for that one (laughs) it's okay (laughs) um so so we've talked about kay we've talked about the boog we've talked about facebook kind of normalizing things i want to discuss when you as a researcher somebody who is very in-depth into this stuff looks at the public political debate about gun rights where do you see Kay's influence? Do you see it? Because I think like in, in the original questions I sent you, I kind of conceptualized this as the NRA, but um, in kind of the day or so, since I sent you the questions, uh, you know, people have pointed out to me that the NRA isn't really the most powerful or most influential lobbying group anymore. They're the most visible, but they're not, um, they're not you know the one with all the influence anymore. So to kind of go back to the original question, when you look at our public discourse and our public debate about guns and the Second Amendment, do you see sort of Kay's influence and how do you see it? Where where is that influence kind of manifesting itself in the discourse?
1: Yeah, so there's this, you know, there's different kind of conceptions of what Second Amendment rights means and there's more so than that almost there's been different approaches to well what do we do about this thing that keeps on happening in this country where someone kills a lot of people with a gun and the nra's kind of position uh post early school shooting stuff was that to kind of rebrand the the black rifle the ar-15 like uh, the What was the term they used? Modern Sporting Rifle. That's what it was. Because the, the NRA's kind of mandate as an organization is a, a sportsman or sportsman's organization. It's for guys who like to hunt and guys who like to competitively shoot, in theory. And they kind of tried to do the more extreme turn. Do you remember NRA TV? That fever dream?
0: I think so. Uh, That's one. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you know they a lady or something.
1: Yeah, they've always got a lady with a big gun, uh, and all the hogs love it every time. But it, they can't really do like the full heel turn. They just haven't been capable of it. Uh, Partially because there's so much money running through the NRA, and like none. I mean, look if I if I was somewhere in NRA leadership and almost ev- like a significant portion of the Republicans in the country paid me dues every year, I wouldn't change my position on anything either. Now there's a lot of, there's some other organizations that have sort of popped up as the the, the new NRA. Uh, one of them is pretty old. Gun Owners of America was for a while, the more extreme NRA. Um, Like they had a much more friendly relationship with the militia movement. And that, that organization was started in the late seventies, partially as a pushback to the idea that the NRA was a sportsman's organization, which was even a thing at that time. And then more recently, the firearms policy coalition is the big kind of new kid on the block that's uh shown up and the fpc is one of those weird things that comes out of this milieu where sometimes i i'm like oh these guys are probably good for the way that we talk about firearms overall and sometimes i'm like man these these are the worst guys who could talk about firearms ever uh, because they are they are like more inclusive, I guess would be the word that you could use. I mean, there was another case, it was similar to the Castile one. I forget the man's name, but there was someone who was shot by the police while lawfully carrying a concealed firearm in the process of trying to show his concealed carry license. And he was he was a black guy. And the FPC released A lot of statements about that Uh, they're very i guess uh altruistic about the issue overall now they've got they've got some stuff that make you say hmm in there like if you go to their shop um there's yeah fpc logo in hawaiian print uh there's you know a bunch of stuff like that and Save the dogs, abolish the ATF, all all your kind of normal bookboy boy kind of stuff. Um, but they're they're the real up and comer. And because they also have a significant more more so than being a lobbying organization, they are a, a legal organization, first and foremost. Uh, so they'll they'll like litigate about this stuff a, a lot and they are really um kind of i'm trying to think of the word like what the best way to describe this would be so yeah when you look through the cases they've done um yeah they sued the joint counterterrorism assessment team uh because they didn't fulfill their FOIA request about how they defined a privately made firearm which i i mean you know when it comes to basic state accountability i yeah we should probably know what the definition of that is and but then there's just a lot of weird stuff in there and i don't i don't know what the firearms policy coalition is going is going to turn into uh you know we don't know they might just drop off the face of the earth and there've been plenty of people who've tried to dethrone the NRA and it's never really worked but when you look at uh yeah these are their partners you look at this it gives you a really good idea of kind of how this how this space is changing uh so like some of their partners include Brownells uh, which is just a big online gun shop uh silencer shop so there's a a bunch of these guys are also way more into getting like a an nfa regulated item uh getting a tax stamp and throwing a can on a rifle or uh turning a ar pistol into an sbr uh which i mean my my personal opinion is that suppressors overall are a net good that saves a lot of eardrums Uh, But it's a very specific aesthetic, too. And, like, they're partnered with um, 80% Lower, which is, like, the main manufacturer of the sort of ghost gun lower receiver. Uh, Polymer 80, which is another quote-unquote ghost gun sort of company. They'll make frame kits so you can... 3D print the rest of the parts and put a Glock together, put a different grip on a Glock firing mechanism, all this different stuff. Uh, so there's there's a very distinct difference between these these newer ones and where they think the issue is too. Uh, because ultimately they're, the FPC's kind of actions are focused on mostly state level issues um and just kind of keeping this sort of this sort of fundamentalist view of the second amendment uh which is really the growing one from these spaces is the this belief that oh civilians should be able to own everything which in Theory, sure, like I mean personally, I'm more or less of the opinion that you know if we're gonna have law enforcement or a state uh any entity that has a monopoly on violence, then it's probably a bad call for me to not be able to have some of the stuff they have, but then then it gets ridiculous too, because again, I mean like you were saying when we brought up uh the call to the operator like you can't just you can't just have a tank and just be like one guy. You gotta, and you know, there's logistical stuff that comes along with all these things they want to do. But it's a very no compromise position, and I actually didn't know this, but the Supreme Court case that was decided today was uh, litigated by the FPC so that's the possibly nationwide constitutional carry one i'm not
0: not a lawyer i think so i think that's the one yeah i need to double check uh to your point like it it removed like now you can conceal carry anywhere i guess yes or yeah something something along those lines um this question of the state influence versus federal is kind of interesting to me because I think, I think like, thinking about legal strategies, like the impact, if you lobby at a state level, you're going to have a lot more impact, um, local impact versus the federal, but eventually you're going to have to focus on the federal level if you want to deal with gun issues. So I, I guess my question is, is like, like, are we going to see this kind of movement away from state into federal action, like not just, well, I guess you you kind of made this point that it's both legal action and lobbying. So I guess, you know, you could have that at the federal level, but like fundamentally, do you see them going from state lobbying and legal action to more federal, to more kind of that larger kind of legal structure? Yeah, so I think I think it's definitely
1: possible. Um, the the big thing with that is the FPC's done a really good job, and again has accomplished some some really good things overall, um, with some caveats. But they have definitely found a niche that they fit into that the NRA does not. Which I think is really important. If you want to go to D.C. and do firearms lobbying, and you're not the NRA, then you're starting almost a hundred years late. Like you are, you are way behind in the the connections and the, you know, all the stuff that comes along with lobbying. So I, I think there's a there are definitely situations in which they will take the lobbying action to more of a federal level. But I think they've found a, and again, not having any idea what this organization will end up as it's very, very new overall. But I think what, what I think of when I look at their strategy is that they are doing the conservative legal movement thing. Uh, this is, and who knows what their final goal maybe because with the conservative legal movement beforehand it was striking down row and it it was incredibly effective like it i i grew up in sort of these that type of evangelical um space like i yeah i used to get rides home from school from someone who is a alliance defending freedom attorney like this is something that I'm very familiar with and you have to sometimes I just step back and look at it all. And it's like, wow, that really, that really did work good. And I I think they can do, and it requires a media angle too, because the conservative legal movement also relied on changing the media narratives around abortion and stuff. But if you can build up that kind of infrastructure, then I think ultimately what they'd probably go for is they'd probably try to appeal, uh, repeal the NFA strike the nfa down as unconstitutional uh but i think if they if that is what they're doing which it certainly looks like uh, whether they're doing it you know with with that goal in mind or not these sorts of kind of out of sight efforts work really well when especially when you set up this sort of pipeline because that was the really effective thing about the conservative legal movement surrounding abortion was that oh you join the heritage foundation in law school and then when you get out of law school some guy from the heritage foundation is going to give you a job you can go do a blackstone legal fellowship so on and so forth and the other thing with stuff like that is we we don't really know what that what that means, uh, because it means different things and different political climates. I mean, if people had, if the NFA had been repealed in, like, the middle of summer 2020, like, who knows what that looks like. If we, you know, if 2024 turns out better than it seems, (laughs) then we could maybe appeal the NFA, repeal the NFA, and it would be fine but it opens a a big door that we don't really know what this movement will look like, what, and what it's going to mean
0: writ large. Something that I kind of find fascinating is like a lot of like mutuals and friends on the left kind of cheerlead, you know, the NRA kind of being hobbled and, and kind of, um, you know, not collapsing, but being diminished, right? They have all these financial issues. Wayne LaPierre is getting like $30,000 fur coats in Beverly Hills. Like they're just kind of like wasting a lot of money and a lot of time, but it almost in, in sort of in this conversation, it almost seems like the NRA is sucking up a lot of oxygen lobby wise and legal action wise that, it almost seems like if the NRA collapses or goes away, these smaller kind of more focused, probably more extreme groups will come up in its place. Or is it, Are do we have to more like sort of conceptualize these organizations as more separate as kind of like NRA is over here. uh, This other organization is over here and they're kind of working towards the same goal, but they're kind of doing it at their own pace and their own kind of skill set within their own kind of skill set and ideology.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's one of those weird situations that we find ourselves in sometimes where the, the guys who really suck and are just like, you know, shitty reactionaries are the best case scenario we've got. Like as a gun rights organization, I mean, you could create something better. I'd love it if someone did. Um, Because this is like something that I I do think every person has a right to defend themselves. But the alternative is a lot weirder. Probably worse, but we definitely know it's a lot weirder. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, who did he run against? Yeah, it's like Pat Buchanan running for... Republican presidential candidate uh in 92 when he ran against H.W. Bush like George H.W. Bush is not a not a person I'm a huge fan of but I would rather he be president than Pat Buchanan probably like it's one of those it's just one of those real catch 22s and like the NRA is also partially because of all the internal turmoil they've been having and the fact that they keep on trying to do like media efforts and they keep on failing because they don't get like what their target audience is. But yeah, it's kind of, yeah, we're just sort of stuck with them unless they do just completely collapse, but they've really slowed down because the NRA used to, even in like the early Trump years, the NRA was doing crazy stuff, like, you know, releasing videos about how to, I mean, pretty much how to shoot a protester. And now they, they've kind of just, I mean, again, they're hemorrhaging money, they're getting sued by uh, the New York, uh, Southern District of New York. And so, yeah, they're wrapped up in legal battles. And that's, this like how how that landscape looks right now it's probably as good as we're gonna get
0: and real realistically we'll never get a kind of organization like the nra but from the left
1: (laughs) yeah no i mean like i mean i i know people who were involved at kind of the upper levels of like the socialist rifle association for example which yeah, I, I love the idea. I really do. And if anyone listening is an SRA member, I, I was too. More power to you. Like, if you can find a good group of people, it's a cool organization. But you can't do anything legally with that. Like, you can't affect how laws are made in the country. Uh, because there's just no space for that on the the mainstream left let's say of america like the lines have kind of already been drawn in the sand that guns are a right-wing cultural issue and i i don't really think we're changing that it's also that like the big issue is we're kind of just at a stand standstill in general with the gun problem and that's why i'm I'm impressed by the FPC's sort of state-level focus because the only place where you can still pass gun control is at the state level. It is logistically about as close to completely impossible as you could get to legislate your way out of America's gun situation at the federal level. There, is, there are more firearms in this country than people. And everyone who is really into firearms, the one thing they've been telling us for decades now is hey, if someone tries to take these away from me, we are going to do a lot of violence. And like that was the thing that spurred the resurgence of Virginia's militia movement was that Ralph Northam tried to pass, I, I don't even think most of them ended up passing some gun control bills and suddenly people were forming armed
0: paramilitary units about it. It's kind of um, fast, like fascinating to me because Emmy kind of made this point on one of her appearances. I don't remember. I think it was the Gamergate episode where that pipeline of influence doesn't exist on the left. Right. So like on the right, you can say like, okay, to the boogaloo uh, to these legal and lobbying organizations and then you know to face you know to facebook etc whereas just overall i think about the left and there's no there's no pipeline like that and there is especially like no pipeline like that for gun rights and gun control like it's it's just not there like i i think like in the research for this show i kind of really struggled to find an example of that pipeline and of a successful kind of gun rights, gun control from the left. Like, I I think I started with um, the Sandy Hook book that I've been reading on and off uh, the Williamson book. And it was just like, it it just kind of culturally blew my mind because like, here's, here's a Noah Posner's dad. Like he, the, the son is a victim and it's just like he still kind of waffles about gun control and, and sort of, you know, gun reduction and gun laws. And it was just like, that's how powerful like gun ownership is culturally. It's just like this guy lost oh, his yeah. son. Yeah. Go
1: ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's, it is nuts, honestly, because like my, my fundamental, kind of take on guns that people should have the right to defend themselves. However, I also live in a country where we keep on having children buying guns to kill a bunch of other children. And like sorry, you got to solve that. That's not you can't be a functioning society and have that keep happening. And I think there's a compromise there. But again, yeah, you're right. Like there really is and I come back to this a lot, too, in general, that, like, even if we're talking about kind of the mainstream liberal, quote-unquote, left of America, there is no institution that um, it is even close to the things that the right has built. I mean, I'm writing something right now about uh, the Groypers and college Republican clubs, And, like, when you look at the membership numbers of college Republicans to college Democrats and how many of those people go on to work in politics, and then you look at, like, again, the conservative legal movement and you look at the NRA, like, this is kind of a broad reactionary sort of point of view that has built up these pipelines to continuously litigate this culture war a term that i don't like but i can't think of a better one right now but like litigate this culture war in the public square forever and there's there's not really an answer to that because we're kind of seeing now like this this movement and these institutions that came out of the sort of new right of the 70s and you know that all of the William F. Buckley hangers on and whatnot and that sort of movement where they really built these institutions. And then, you know, you have your neocons and all their think tanks and stuff. And we're seeing that reach its conclusion in a lot of ways now, like the row getting overturned is one of the most impressive political projects Ever in my opinion, like a majority of Democrats and Republicans were in favor of abortion when the original Roe v. Wade ruling passed. Uh, The party couldn't get a majority of Republicans to be against abortion until the 80s, the late 80s at that. And I, I think for a lot of them, especially a lot of sort of the young professional Republican pipeline type guys working at think tanks and, uh, uh you know, lobbying firms and whatnot, haven't really realized that there's, there's an eventual end to this and that like, you guys have these massive institutions that exert so much power. And the plan, I guess was, it seems like for a lot of people, the plan was just to keep fundraising forever But these institutions are, they've whittled down enough and they've gotten big enough as groups to suddenly they're achieving their goals. And like if they continue to, you know, all right, well, all these institutions achieve their goals. Well, that worked so well last time. We've got all these new institutions. And, you know, they kind of keep with that strategy or they choose new issues. We've really, Seen that it it ultimately works. I mean, even like the cultural issues that the right had problems with that we thought were, I think people broadly kind of thought were just off the table, are suddenly under serious threat. Like a lot of these things that we were just like, oh well, that's all decided. That's that's old news. And as that as these actors from these spaces continue to exert more influence online, uh, like discursively, more and more young—I mean, it's the same—it's same situation as the Groypers and the College Republicans, and you have this kind of thing that appeals to your your College Republican type, and there more of them are getting into it every year. And the views of these groups are getting more and more extreme. And I think you're seeing a lot of that happen with gun culture too, because this sort of stuff was not the norm, even like throughout my lifetime, it has not been the norm. Um, I mean, I grew up shooting. I, I got my, I was given my first gun when I was seven years old and I didn't know anyone who owned an AR-15 until I was in high school, probably. And now, like, if, I mean, you know, if you own a firearm and, or if you own multiple firearms and you don't own a Glock or an AR, people are like, what are you doing? And and as that, yeah, as that continues to change and if they manage to utilize these institutions that they're trying to create things get real weird
0: that's a fascinating question because i never hear that being asked which is uh how does this end or what is the end point because like in the roe versus wade case the end goal is to remove roe versus wade but in the second amendment case it's like you know, you're just constantly empowering people to buy more and more powerful arms. Like what is it it almost seems like I hate saying this, but it's almost like like the end the end will be like mass violence or increased mass shootings or something. Like I just well I think that's almost I mean kind of in the same way that
1: the racism isn't necessarily necessarily explicit but it's part of the ultimate goal i i think not explicitly but the violence is part of the goal i mean this is this goes back to that early american stuff this idea of being being on the frontier the slowly carving a path through the terra nullis that you've discovered like and I think that's where the cult of the operator kind of comes back in too, because uh, one thing that I always come back to with the the sort of media frenzy around seals and uh, you know operator types is that we've seen this before, and we saw it most prominently in the British Empire. Uh, so in the later British imperial like, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, the Maxim gun was invented, the first modern uh, crew-served machine gun. And the Maxim gun was, like, all you needed if you were doing colonialism in sub-Saharan Africa in the early 1900s. Like, it, it is an automatic weapon. It's not that not that tough to figure out how useful it is but when you look at uh, there's this a lot of art surrounding the kind of idealized colonial British life at the time you will never see the maxim gun in it you will see the riflemen with their Lee Enfields because that's the idealized version of the violence that's actually happening Uh, Because in truth, like, I I think it was the early 1890s, uh, some British troops in South Africa used one Maxim gun to kill 1,500 local people. Like, you can't make a painting of that. You got to make a painting of, like, one guy with a bolt-action rifle being surrounded by, you know, your colonial subjects. And I, I think it's the same thing with that and kind of how these people conceptualize violence. Because the the actual bulk of the United States' involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Syria has not been, you know, dudes wearing cool night vision and fast roping out of helicopters. It's been drone strikes. And airstrikes and generally dropping munitions from heights onto people who were maybe terrorists maybe not we still haven't figured some of them out and i think there's a real similarity there and the culmination that you saw of that colonial vision of violence was in in many ways world war one when you read all these guys who were we're so excited to go out and you know do an honorable gentleman's war and then their buddy jeff one trench down gets sliced in half by a machine gun and oh my other friend just his lung just melted out of his mouth from all the mustard gas like and they were they were horrified it like ruined a whole generation of people famously but I I think they are all kind of striving for that Western word that that's, that's a real ask. I have to put a big asterisk by Western, but this sort of like Western conception of masculinity and the role that violence plays in it. And they're all kind of searching for that, that adventure, that chance to prove that they, they really are like that. And Who knows? Maybe some of them will get caught in something bad, and it will scare them all enough that they go around and tell everybody, hey, you actually don't want to get in a firefight. Because here's the truth. You don't want to get in a firefight. It's a miserable experience. It's not, there's, this is like the number one situation to avoid in your life, the situations that they're constantly preparing for. And I think it's valuable to be prepared for situations and that you may come into and threats that you may face but i mean these these guys can't do threat assessment for for shit like i think that's really the the strange part of it too is you don't seem to really have any conception of what what this actually means But, but I do think that if left completely unfettered, this kind of cultural thing that we're stuck with is going to eventually continuously rear its head.
0: Interesting. Um, so I, th- I think we, we've been talking for about almost two hours now. Um, and I, I think we have reached the end point, the natural end point. And as yeah. with any ending, uh, we have to ask the legendary last question, which is um, before we go for the day, um, leave us with something to think about, something to chew on, something, you know, it, it can be, you know, a quick comment. It can be a long form statement, but something for me and the audience to kind of iterate over and to think about, uh you know when this conversation is over
1: yeah so i i guess i'll stick with the topic and just kind of give you guys my basic i think i'm a semi-reasonable person outlook on like if 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 you're someone who's who's worried about this or you live in an area where this sort of paramilitary activity is uh could affect your life which does happen in a lot of places in the country like i i think if you're worried about some kind of threat the first thing you should do is you should go get real medical training before you buy a gun before you do any of that learn how to put on a tourniquet take a stop the bleed class get a basic ifac and know what to use in it the statistical likelihood of you having to use basic trauma medicine is so much higher than you having to use a gun. And the cool thing about trauma medicine is that you can't kill someone with it. Well, you can, but you can't purposefully kill someone with it. And yeah, I'd say do that. I would say if, if you do feel like you're interested in firearms or you would like to start exploring that world do it cautiously um do it responsibly uh if you're gonna concealed carry a weapon at the very least you should be carrying some sort of blowout kit or trauma kit and you should be carrying a non-lethal weapon with you as well I would never carry a firearm if I do not have pepper spray on me because I would much rather pepper spray someone than shoot them in the face. And yeah, I mean, if if you're a person out there who's listening to this and you you do feel interested in this stuff or you do feel like the sort of climate you're surrounded by is sort that makes you need to think about this stuff, you can also I mean, just shoot me a shoot me a message on on Twitter. I'm always open to talking to people about this stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, that's really all I've got. Awesome. Uh, Well, that was Theo Hansen. Uh, Again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love it.